Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an expert in geriatrics care discusses why it's so important to prevent falls in seniors. Fall is, is really one of the most common events, and it's significant because it's an event that threatens the independence of our older adults. So it's, it's a huge issue for us. A pharmacist goes over what to expect if you're receiving chemotherapy. Remember, there are side effects that can happen. It's important to um, try to watch out for those those side effects. And a doctor who focuses on wellness talks about the root cause of the mental exhaustion so many people are feeling. In terms of you know health, wellness, well-being, mental health, there are so many factors that many of which were present before the pandemic, but have been magnified or exacerbated by the pandemic. All that in a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pharmacist gives an overview of chemotherapy, including its accidental discovery. Then we'll explore the root cause of the mental exhaustion that seems to be sweeping the nation. But first, an expert in geriatrics talks about why preventing falls in seniors is so important, with some tips for how to do that. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Falls can cause serious injuries, especially in people over age 65. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says one in four older people fall each year with fewer than half telling their doctor about their fall. I'm talking today with Dr. Andrea Berg. She specializes in geriatric medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Berg, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, how big of an issue are falls among the patients that your practice sees? Fall is, is really one of the most common events, and it's significant because it's an event that threatens the independence of our older adults. So it's, it's a huge issue for us. What types of injuries do you commonly see in someone who falls? Is it true that 95% of hip fractures happen in falls? That's true. Over 90% of hip fractures are a result of a fall. Almost a third of those who fall may need medical attention relating to that fall. Unfortunately, most of those will have some restriction on their activity for at least some time. The injuries vary. Most falls will result in just minor soft tissue injuries, but 5 to 10% result in a fracture or more serious soft tissue injury or head injuries. But the hip fractures really are a major concern and an issue if they happen. Is it always lower extremity or do you see upper extremity fractures as well? Certainly see upper extremity as well, depending upon how the fall happened. We can have wrist or shoulder injuries. We can have rib fractures as well, depending upon sort of the situation that ended up with the fall. There's some groups that are higher risk, you know, women in nursing home settings. And if they have other medical conditions like dementia, they tend to be the highest risk. And we'll see them more often with the hip fractures. So let's talk about what recovery is like. If someone over age 65 breaks a bone, what, what is recovery like for them? Well, for a fracture, you know, medical management tries to first relieve pain and ideally to restore bone alignment and allow fractures to heal. For if in the setting of a hip fracture for a medically stable person with a hip fracture, a surgical repair is recommended and ideally early within that first 24 to 72 hour period after the fracture, because earlier repair is linked with a lower chance of complications. But then after that, there's rehab. Um, rehab after say, a hip fracture will continue to include pain management, trying to mobilize people, and then again, to prevent complications from happening. So to start out with, they may be immobilized for a while before they can get up and do the physical therapy? Yes. And that opens you up to a whole bunch of other problems, the complications, right? As you quickly can have a loss of strength and you can set yourself up to things like pressure ulcers. If you're in a sort of a um, immobilized state, people could get delirious, they can get blood clots, they could get um, lung issues. So those are the complications um, that we're really, really trying to avoid. 
So with a fractured hip, because that one seems pretty common, is there casting involved? Yeah, there's a wide variety depending upon where it is. If it's a place where they it often can just be pinned. So there's a lot of different surgical options where they might have to go in and have a pin. Um, but again, it's not necessarily a, a, a cast of brace, but for our older folks, rehab isn't necessarily so easy and working around pain and some of the limitations, that's where restoring function isn't always perfect. You know, about 75% of hip fracture survivors will return to their prior level of function, but their overall mobility is going to be more limited. You know, half of them will need an assist device like a cane or a walker, and a half of patients will have a need for a stay in a long-term care rehab, but only some of those might not ever return to home. You know, 25% of those might still be in long-term care a year later. So that's where the functional changes happen in folks that survive these hip fractures. And, and to note, the hip fractures themselves, there's a mortality rate. People do die from the, the fall itself, 5% during that initial hospitalization in some of our frailer folks. But a year out, 25% can die just because of complications from the fracture. So that's why we take these falls really seriously, because they can have real impacts on people's survival. It sounds like recovery can be very challenging. Yeah, that's why we try to prevent them if possible. You mentioned this can threaten someone's independence. So even if someone, if all they break is a wrist or an ankle, can an older person live alone and have a healthy recovery without assistance for an injury like that? It's hard to make broad blankets, but even those that don't experience physical injury, you know, falls definitely are associated with declines in their functional status and that they have an increased likelihood that they're going to need more supports either in their home or God forbid, having to leave their home and transition into a, like a skilled nursing placement. In general, people are going to have an increased need for medical services. And the bigger concern too, is that they might develop a fear of falling, which unto itself sets them up for a negative impact on their quality of life and a higher risk of falling again. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with geriatric specialist, Dr. Andrea Berg. Let's talk about some of the typical reasons that someone who is older might fall. What do you typically see? Falls, like many things in geriatrics, are, are rarely one thing. You know, it's often an accumulation of a lot of little things that can add up. But there are some age-related changes that could set people up for a fall. You know, changes in strength, balance, our nervous system. Those are normal age changes that might increase people's risk of falling. But then there's medical causes, too, that you layer on to those changes. And they could really increase people's risk. And that's really varied. You know, changes in vision changes in cognition, dementia, Parkinson's or stroke or blood pressure, almost anything. You can see how arthritis, these common conditions that happen as we get older can cumulatively increase somebody's risk of falling. So it's really important that on working with your medical providers, you try to optimize your medical therapy, monitoring for disease progression so that we're always avoiding things like a, if we choose our medications appropriately, we could maybe avoid people being at an increased risk of falls. You mentioned medications. I mean, there's some of them that leave a person feeling a bit dizzy. I can imagine that might make someone more prone to falling, right? Absolutely. There's a bunch of high-risk meds. A lot of them have to do with sleeping. You know, a lot of our hypnotics that people take a lot of medications for sleeping trying to make them feel a little sedated is their goal. But unfortunately, that could cloud people's thinking. It could impair their balance. And that group is really high risk for setting up people for falls. Some of the mood medications as well, meds for anxiety or depression, like benzodiazepines in particular, we really try to avoid as people get older because they have been shown to significantly increase people's risk of falling. But even blood pressure medicines, if they're medicines like diuretics that could lower people's blood pressure perhaps too much or set them up for being a little dehydrated, that could increase people's risk for falling. So in general, we try real hard to tr just limit the medications to those that we really need, you know, less is more. And that's something that we frequently will be doing in our offices is looking through and saying, are there safer options? Can we use the lowest effective dose possible and the fewest meds? 
I'm assuming in central New York, fall hazards increase during the winter months. Do, do you see more patients who've slipped on the ice? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the summer months have their own challenge as well when it comes to high temperatures and hydration. But definitely slipping on the ice or just uneven and, and slippery surfaces come with their, their risks. Now, I've heard that a person who falls once has a really good chance of falling again, but I don't understand the reasons for that. That's absolutely true. And that's a screen that we do in the office. If somebody's coming in with an initial fall, then we'll look into it. But a history of falls puts them in a different category where we have to think a little bit more holistically on how can we prevent them in a broader approach. I think fear of falling plays into that repeated fall though. A fear of falling can lead people to kind of play it safe too much. They might restrict what they're doing and then that's negative for their quality of life. They're not interacting as much, they're less social, but also it could lead to poor balance. They might change the way they're walking even as the fear limits their natural stride and that becomes a risk factor for future falls. What do you say to a patient who has survived a bad fall and now is petrified of falling again? You know, there's actually a whole group of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, that has been shown to be very helpful in this. They aim to change sort of how the person thinks. That's the cognitive part. And then how they act. That's the behavioral part. And looking to kind of overcome that fear of falling by shifting their focus away from more pessimistic thoughts and things that they could do, like exercise, to promote their balance and their safety. Well, let's talk about some of the ways that family members can help reduce the chance of their older loved ones falling. What do you recommend? One of the first things we look at is the home environment. And that's sort of hard sometimes for us in an office to get a sense of what's the reality of people day to day. So they're real basic things like making sure the lighting is adequate, uh, particularly at night, removing things around the house on the floor that might be a hazard. If there are things like door jams, accounting for them, looking for loose carpeting or throw rugs. Looking at the furniture, maybe replacing some of the existing furniture with safer, more stable, and more appropriate height options. Um, support structures. Sometimes we even, for folks that are repeated fallers, partner with our physical therapy colleagues and they do home safety assessments. And they'll look at high-risk areas like the bathrooms and make some suggestions on where some grab bars should be installed or elevated toilet seats. So very basic functional things to set people up to succeed non-slip bath mats or a bedside commode to avoid people having to use the restroom a lot in the evening. So those are some things that families can do if, if we're worried to avoid falls or if somebody has fallen to avoid future falls. But then also very basic things like footwear, making sure that the shoes that people are wearing are not only fashionable, but functional as well, that they are a good fit, that they're non-slip, that they're not high heeled and that they have a really good surface area contact <laughs> ratio. So those are some things that family members, I think, can be helpful with to prevent falls. Um, I noticed you said footwear. You're not talking about just wearing socks in the house because socks are slippery, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Is it a good idea to go barefoot? You know, in your own house, I think that for people, if they're at a higher risk of falls, I think it's better to have supportive footwear that have a little bit more of a tread and that'll give more balance and stability for folks. There's, there's a lot of reasons, like we said before, that people have medical conditions that might impair their, their um, ability to feel on the bottom of their feet. And so you want to set them up for success that they're not in an unsteady place that they could trip. So if they're a high risk faller, I would wear supportive footwear instead of certainly not socks and bare feet. Now, does vitamin D play a role in preventing falls? Yeah, that's interesting. So if people are deficient, if they're low in vitamin D, there's certainly a role in falls, but it hasn't been shown for a while. There was thoughts of, we'll give D to everybody, but it hasn't been shown that just giving vitamin D to people that don't have low vitamin D levels improves fall risk. But certainly it's something we check for. And if somebody is low in vitamin D, and by that it's usually agreed upon that like a total D level of less than 30, we should supplement them appropriately with pills, with daily supplements, because that has been shown to improve muscle strength as well as bone health. 
how do geriatricians like yourself evaluate an individual's risk for falling? If you have a new patient coming in, what sorts of questions would you ask them? Well, we have to ask explicitly if they've fallen, because often people don't necessarily report falls on their own. So asking about if they have a history of falls or if they've fallen recently and, and a little bit about the setting around the falls, if they come in with a fall is really important. But other things as well, just asking about any difficulty people are having with walking or with balance, if they're having trouble getting up from a chair, if they're having a false start where they have to do a couple of tries to get up before they're able to stand, if they're having dizziness when they stand or problems with their eyes any weakness or sort of numbness, uh, those are all red flags that would make me concerned about safety and falls. And those are definitely screening questions that we ask. If you identify someone who is a fall risk, does that person still need some sort of activity or exercise? And if so, what sorts of things do you recommend if the fall risk for someone is relatively high? I recommend activity for everybody. <laughs> I think that shouldn't be something that we reserve for just those at risk of falling. I'd like to take a more proactive preventive approach. So exercise programs, there are some that are better than others. For fall reduction, exercise programs that have more than one type of exercise have been shown to be the best. And by that, I mean a combination of exercises that improve gait, balance, strength, and coordination. So things with resistance bands, we often use for some of the strength training, like those big elastic rubber bands, um, but also things that focus on functional fitness, like squats that will strengthen areas of our body that we need to stand and to sit appropriately, even our upper arms as well, or our core. Those are things that will prevent people from day to day as they're transferring and going about their days keep them um, fit enough to not set them up for a fall. Well, thank you, Dr. Berg. I really appreciate you making time to talk to us about how falls can affect the older generations. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Berg. She's an assistant professor in geriatric medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. What to expect if you're receiving chemotherapy? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard about chemotherapy as a treatment for cancer. Today, we'll delve deeper into what it is and how it works with Timothy Chang. He's a pharmacist at the Upstate Cancer Center. Thank you for being here, Mr. Chang. Thank you for having me today. What is chemotherapy? Is there a standard definition? Um, so if we look at the definition of, of chemotherapy, um, it's any medications that are used to treat fast-growing cells in the body. Um, and typically, this is referring to cancer cells. So by fast growing, if there's other cells that are fast growing, they might be uh, affected as well. Yes, they, they can be, which leads to some of the side effects that can happen with chemotherapy. I see. Well, so it's not a particular medication or even a combination of it's medication. A, no, it's, a, it's a referring to a, um, just a, a group of medications that, that can uh, do this particular uh, thing of, of killing those fast-growing cells. Um, so it's just a general term. How many different chemotherapy drugs are there? Probably uh, close to a couple hundred um, medications available right now. Um, and it, on, uh, as time goes on, this, uh, this uh, number keeps growing and growing. So are, are some of the same drugs used for a variety of different cancers or does every cancer have its own you know, unique kind of chemotherapy? Depending on the medication, there, there is some overlap with medic, of medication between the different types of cancers. Um, it depends, uh, a lot of this depends on the sensitivity of the tumor um, to these different types of chemotherapy. And if um, they are sensitive, then um, 
there is a potential for use for, for using these chemotherapies in those medications. Well, can you tell us about the first chemotherapy drug? I mean, how many years ago was this uh, sort of developed? So the first chemotherapy drug was available back in the 1940s, and its um, development of it was actually uh, fairly interesting. Um, it was derived um, from mustard gas that was used in uh, World War One by the Germans. Um, and what ended up happening was a doctor uh, was doing uh, looking at some of the autopsy results um, in, in some of the soldiers from from the First World War, and they noticed that the uh, bone marrow in these patients was significantly um, halted by by the mustard gas. Um, and then they looked at this and um, realized that they were able to use this type of they, they might be able to use this type of medication for cancer, and so. Um, they did some modification to the mustard gas, um, made it into a injectable product at that point. So it was called nitrogen mustard, um, and now it's commonly known as a drug called mechlorethamine. Um, and uh, they used it to treat a, the first lymphoma patient in the 1940s, um, and that patient had great results with it and ended up in remission at that time. So sort of discovered by accident? Yes. Yep. Wow. Um, so the patient in the forties had lymphoma. Is that, uh, what kind of cancer is that? It's a blood type of cancer. Uh, the cell type in the lymph node, uh, starts growing uncontrollably and um, there are some. More underlying things that can cause this, but, um, that's the general uh, de definition. Interesting. Well, can you walk us through how chemotherapy has evolved since then? In the broadest terms, chemotherapy can affect all types of cells as times gone on, um, scientists are now looking at using more targeted approaches to try to minimize some of the toxicities to patients. Um, so as you look as time's gone on, um, the chemotherapies become more and more targeted towards specific um, targets on the cancer cells. Um, so a lot of the new oral medications uh, that are out there are looking at specific, they're called molecular targets on the outside of the tumors, um, and they stop cell signaling. So a lot of the newer drugs are targeting this, and some of the newer IV medications um, are looking at the same same thing. They're targeting um, specific, a specific molecule on the outside of that tumor and trying to um, minimize toxicity to our patients. That's what I was going to wonder. So, I mean, because if this started with mustard gas, toxic, it's become the, the drugs have become less toxic over time. Um, so we hope they've become less toxic. Unfortunately, there are still, um. A lot of side effects with some of these newer medications, um, they're just trying to focus it more. Unfortunately, by inhibiting a specific target, though, sometimes those targets still affect some normal cell function as well. And that's what leads to some of these side effects. So is the goal of chemotherapy always to kill the cancer cells? Um, it's either to kill the, the cancer cells or to slow down the growth of the of the cancer cells as well. And then you use the term cell signaling. That it, does that have to do with cell growth? Yes, it, it can do with cell growth. Yeah. What about are there other diseases other than cancer um, for which chemotherapy may be prescribed? Yes. Um, there's, so there's some autoimmune type diseases that. That it can be used for so things like rheumatoid arthritis, um, multiple sclerosis is starting to utilize some chemotherapy medications to try to um, slow down the course of the disease by um, stopping the immune system. Interesting. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with pharmacist Timothy Chang from the Upstate Cancer Center, and our subject today is chemotherapy. Why are some chemotherapy medications oral and some intravenous through a needle? So it depends on um, how the medication can be absorbed. Some medications can be absorbed orally, and then um, if when they go through the gut, they need to be converted by the liver. Um, and some medications just aren't able to be absorbed that way. We can utilize the, the gut. Um, sometimes that is the best option and also has to do with some of the toxicities available on the medications as well. 
is uh, which which works quicker, oral or intravenous? Um, typically, um, the IV has a faster onset of action just because it has because it's going straight into the bloodstream. The oral oral medications still work fairly quickly though, so um, I I wouldn't say one's faster than the other necessarily. And with other types of medications, I hear the term time release because they're meant to you know work over a course of hours or, or days, I guess. It, does that apply to chemotherapy drugs as well? Um, certain chemotherapy medications, and sometimes it has to do with where in the, um, in the GI tract um, it needs to be absorbed from. So sometimes they'll say it's a time release medication though. So it has some protection for the medication. So it needs to get to a certain part of the gut um, in order for it to absorb properly. Now, if someone um, needs an infusion and needs the intravenous chemotherapy type through an infusion, what determines if that person is going to be hospitalized for that or if they come, you know, and go home after the infusion? So that's a great question. Um, sometimes it has to do with some certain risk factors for the patient. So if they are at risk for having some type of reaction, they may need to end up in the hospital. Um, depending on when they're diagnosed too. Unfortunately, some patients are um, diagnosed right in the hospital, so they need to get treated right away. Um, also, depending on the cancer type as well, so certain acute leukemias need to be treated um, in the hospital just because of the severity of the disease. Um, if it's not as severe, they can be treated on an outpatient basis if the medication allows for it to be like that. Um, and also, uh, the, depending, some some patients need something called a continuous infusion where they need to be hooked up to a pump. If we're able to, we'll send them home with something. If not, um, they need to be admitted to the hospital just because of the time it takes for the infusion to, to go in. In general, how would you uh, tell a person to prepare for chemotherapy? Um, so the best thing to tell the patients is to get plenty of rest and keep up their nutrition. That is really the key factor to preparing themselves for this. So be well rested, well hydrated, well, you know, good nutrition. Um, are there a set of side effects that are common with all chemotherapies or is it very individualized to the drug? It, it's individualized to the drug. Um, yeah, it's a lot of it's very individualized to the drug and to the patients too. Some patients will not have any side effects from the medications, and some patients will respond and uh, will will um will have some reactions to the medication. I've heard about uh, people losing their hair during treatment um, because of chemotherapy. Is that as common today as it used to be? Um, again, it depends on the medication. So as we were talking about before. Um, with some of the side effects, we had said that uh, chemotherapy works on the fast-growing cells um, in the body, and one of the fast-growing cells in the body are, are hair, the cells that produce the hair. Um, and so, like I said, if if the chemotherapy is targeting targeting those rapidly growing cells, then um, that's one of the first things that unfortunately does that can go um, is hair loss. Well, other than rest and, and nutrition, is there anything people can do, um, maybe during an infusion even, that will help their body receive the medication? Hydration and nutrition are probably the best things that they can do. And just um, making sure they have a good support system as well to make sure there's people around them that are able to, uh, to help them during this tough time. Are there um, medications or strategies that can be useful to offset any um, negative side effects such as nausea or or fatigue? Yeah. So as far as the nausea, nausea and vomiting go, I mean that that is also one of the uh, most major side effects with a lot of these medications. Um, and depending on the medication that's being given, um, there are there's a wide wide range of anti-nausea medications that would be given. One example is a medication called uh, Zofran or Ondansetron. Um, that seems to be the most commonly used one. Um, and then depending on the combination of chemotherapy medications that are being given, um, certain combinations um, have a higher potential for patients that have nausea and vomiting. And in those groups of patients, um, 
we'll give a combination of anti-nausea medications to try to help uh, calm them down. And it's always important for the patients to remember too, uh, what we're gonna give them um, the most common uh, anti-nausea medications. If they have nausea and vomiting still through that though, it's important for the patients to always let the, either the pharmacy or the uh, nurse or the oncologist know, um, and then they can always find something a little bit stronger um, to, to help these patients through this tough time. We don't want a patient to go home with that nausea and vomiting and um, have, have these poor outcomes because of that. Do you have any advice for family members or loved ones for how they can help someone who's undergoing chemotherapy? Um, so the best thing to do is be an advocate for the patient. Um, do your research on the chemotherapy medication that the patient's going to be getting. Um, be the present for that education part of it and just keep an eye out for the patient. Sometimes patients are too weak to say anything or too scared to mention anything. But if you can be an advocate for them, um, that, that really is the best thing. And the other other thing to remember too is uh, with some of these newer oral medications, it seems um, it's an oral medication. There won't be any side effects with these medications, but it's important to stay on, on schedule with those medications. And also remember there are side effects that can happen. And it's important to um, try to watch out for those those side effects. And then we, if we can get, keep those under control, the patients can stay on those therapies for a longer period of time and hopefully have a better outcome and keep the disease in check. Thank you to pharmacist Timothy Chang from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, are you feeling mentally exhausted? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As we approach the end of the second year of the pandemic, if you're feeling mentally exhausted, you're definitely not alone. Here with me to talk about what's happening is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness and the Medical Director of Integrative Medicine and Survivorship and also an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine. Thank you for making time for this talk, Dr. Nanavati. Amber, I'm glad to be back. Well, a record number of Americans are quitting their jobs. There's a labor shortage that seems to be impacting all industries. So I want to ask you about the root cause of this turmoil. Do you think this mass exodus is because of the pandemic? You know, honestly, it's a multifactorial thing. So this question that you're posing, a little different than some of the past conversations we've had. And, you know, there are economic theories and political theories, and I'll let the specialists of those talk about that. But in terms of you know, health, wellness, well-being, mental health. There are so many factors that many of which were present before the pandemic, but have been magnified or exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, so what we've noticed with surveys that have been done by multiple organizations that do these things, there's increased anxiety, there's decreased enthusiasm for work, lack of motivation or decreased motivation rather, uh, reduced focus at work, increased sense of depression, people feeling more isolation and kind of uh, less of a network of support, um, even insomnia, lack of sleep, right, and sleep disturbance. And a lot of this is fueled by what's happened during this time frame, which, you know, employees have felt economic uncertainty, right? Uh, people have to deal with family members at home who might be recovering. Uh, I give the example of teachers often, you know, who are possibly parents, so they've got kids at home who are trying to do homeschooling while the teacher may have to be at school. Uh, and, and what a difficult task, right? And then the administrators that have to try to support them and at the same time manage and continue the education, the care. So uh, it's almost become like a no-win situation. And so that makes it difficult at multiple levels, both the employee, the employer have their own unique stressors that you know they're both dealing with. Well, some economists and social scientists are suggesting something more existential. They, they're saying that this rise of remote work may have permanently altered the way we think about our lives and the world. W what are you hearing from your patients or your colleagues or the medical students you teach? 
So I think it's been uh, multifactorial. Again, I would say that, you know, there are some who have thrived with the flexibility that they've been able to have. Working from home has worked out for some people. Learning online has worked out for some people, uh, but not everybody uh, is comfortable with that. Uh, and there are people who, by nature, uh, thrive in social situations, being around people. And for them to be suddenly in front of a computer, one screen or two screens or three screens, uh, and having no physical engagement, no social engagement with other people, that's led to increased anxiety, depression. Uh, and frankly speaking, when you suddenly tell people, you know, you can work from home, companies start to sell buildings or divest in physical space, that can be very scary because that actually sometimes creates economic uncertainty for people. You know, am I going to have a job? Is my job really that necessary if it's not there? Are they going to, you know, hire out or outsource what I'm doing? Uh, for students, you know, when you think about college students, even high school students and medical students, when you have classes that require hands-on that are now being done online, right? The classic example is, you know, anatomy, right? Learning things that are supposed to be hands-on, lab science classes, right? Uh, classes that require group engagement. Being on a screen isn't the same as connecting in person, right? I'm a person who loves to, you know, take a board and start writing stuff and mapping things out people. And it's harder to do on a screen. There are technologies that are, you know, evolving as a result. And I think that's some of the gain that we will get is the technological evolution that this has kind of forced upon us in some ways and actually engendered will shift things for the long term for sure. Uh, you think about telemedicine and telehealth, remote patient monitoring in healthcare, and some of these things are advances that should allow us to manage population health better in the future once we get better at utilizing them and figure out models that actually make them viable, you know, both economically uh, and from the health perspective. With all of what's been happening, some people are leaving their jobs or retiring early because they're just mentally exhausted or they're burned out. And I think healthcare workers are among those with the highest reported cases of burnout. So can we talk about some of the reasons for that? Is it all the fault of the pandemic or is there something more? So one in, actually two out of 10 Americans or about 20% or one in five Americans, however you want to say the numbers, had uh, you know, anxiety, depression, slash mental illness, uh, you know, even before the pandemic. Now, with the pandemic, that's been magnified. And what many people have realized is that, you know what, this stress just isn't worth it for my health. And so people, uh, and I just read an article about, you know, a couple who basically retired, uh, but uh, had enough in their savings where they didn't necessarily jump onto collecting Social Security. They're going to use up some of their retirement and wait to collect Social Security until they're older, because then they get a higher absolute amount uh, in their social security. So people are getting creative in what they're doing. For employers, it's a very difficult thing. And in healthcare, it's, it's a big problem because to replace uh, an experienced employee who has a skill set is not only very expensive, it's time consuming. And in that time frame, when you don't have someone to fill the gap, uh, at the end of the day, that can impact patient care, right? Community care and the health of an entire population. Plus, the people that are left behind now have a greater burden to manage and to take care of. So uh, it's a huge stressor. In fact, for employers, one of the things that they've talked about is, you know, for them, the mental and emotional health of employees and the physical health of employees is actually a much higher factor for them than some other things that people might think of naturally, simply because when employees are anxious or depressed, their functional ability goes down. We know that things like lighting affect it. We've talked about that before with Dr. Satish on a show before, uh, but at the same time, you think about the mood, the tone, you know, the attitude, and one person who is burnt out uh, or depressed or anxious at work can impact the entire team, especially in healthcare, we're so intimately connected in the work that we do in caring for the lives that we're privileged to care for. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about the collective level of mental exhaustion in America as we're wrapping up the second year of the pandemic. Dr. Nanavati is Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness, so he's focused on what can be done to improve the situation, especially among healthcare workers. Now, Dr. Nanavati, you and I have talked before about ways that individuals can cope during stressful times, but this feels like more than that because even some of the most well-adjusted, mentally balanced people are leaving careers because of working conditions. So how do we as a nation fix this? So I think this is a big, big point. Uh, and it's not just a nation, it's a global issue uh, in terms of what we've uh, come to focus on in society. When we talk about efficiency, we talk about things like resilience, we talk about performance measures and all those things. Uh, and recently I had a chance to speak in front of a, a group of finance folks and even in their industry, you know, stress, anxiety, burnout, those are really high. Uh, and so when we think about it, think about wellness as what a system offers, right, for its employees or for the people in its charge so that they can actually have greater sense of well-being and well-being is what people do for themselves, right? So when you think about well-being, and we've talked about this, and we'll continue to talk about this, talk about the core four, nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, spiritual wellness. You know, there are eight domains of wellness that incorporate everything from finance, uh, social, emotional, occupational, environmental factors, nutrition, physical factors, et cetera. But the reality is, as systems, we really have to think about what is it that we're offering for the people that work for us, that we care for, uh, and some of the most important things when we think about it are flexibility, right? So that we meet people where they are. Life is a dynamic, it's not a static. And a lot of companies have, uh, you know, fixed benefits packages and kind of fixed plans in place, but people's lives change, right? And during this pandemic, it really became evident that not everybody has the same need. And not everybody has the same stressor. Some people needed time to take care of loved ones at home, right? Other people had the flexibility to actually offer more time at work, right? And so they could benefit from that extra time. Uh, others started to just not take care of their mental, emotional, nutritional, physical health. And for them, a robust employee uh, assistance program uh, is something that could not only be, everyone thinks of EAP or employee assistance as, oh, if I have a, a mental health problem, I can call them. The reality is an employee assistance program should be able to help with uh, setting up things like childcare, right? Uh, finding resources, whether it's mental health or financial health or physical health and offering those things that become a comprehensive and that can flex, right? With what a person needs so that people can adjust and adapt to their life and the company adjusts with them. That's embracing the relationship with the employee versus dictating or directing the relationship, right? And as we start to do that, we start to realize that employers and employees can actually be part, it's a relationship, right? And a relationship is stronger, it's like a ladder. The two posts are held together by the rungs. Communication, trust, honesty, flexibility, right? Compassion, love, all of those things and more are qualities that bring that relationship together. It has to be done from both sides. And so employees, have to recognize the stressors that employers are facing right now just to keep the doors open. And then employers have to recognize that employees coming in every day are bringing in a greater burden than that's been in the past. And when the pandemic ends, these problems were here before. If we have the wisdom to learn from this, what will happen is we will adapt to a new world with new rules of engagement, right? Which are different than what they were before the pandemic. And when we do that, I think we'll be able to come out of it in a healthier way, hopefully, that's the goal. Uh, and not every industry will come out the same. Not every organization will come out the same. Not every person will come out the same. But what we can do, and especially representing an institution, is be open, meet people where they are, learn their life story first, because then we get context and perspective for each employee, and that's how an institution can support them. And what you're talking about, I think, can apply to every company or business. Um, but I'm feeling like the in healthcare, I mean, we we have to heal the healers first, right? Because they're the ones we turn to to take care of us. Are there specific fixes being talked about in healthcare? 
So I think, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at healthcare, it's a broad spectrum, right? Nurses, uh, healthcare providers, uh, front desk staff, uh, complementary providers, you know, and all those in healthcare, administrators as well, teachers, faculty, students, right, and patients, all have a different perspective on this and different needs. And the most important thing I think that any healthcare organization can do is continue to gauge their employees. I think managers during times of stress and distress should create a more regular and consistent connection with their employees to actually connect, right? To learn where they are. Because if we make assumptions, you know, employers underestimate the degree of distress that employees feel and have felt during this pandemic. Surveys have showed that again and again. And so employers are missing the mark. When employers start to give messages out of positivity without acknowledging the stress and distress that their employees are feeling, I think the first place is to meet people where they are to acknowledge uh, what the reality is and the fact that the, the administrators and bosses are feeling it too versus you know, the boss comes in and says, hey, listen, you guys are doing great. Keep going. Uh, you know, it's a matter of saying, look, I'm stressed too. This is an unpredictable public health crisis. Uh, I don't say unprecedented because different eras have had different things, but definitely unpredictable. Uh, and in that sense, we're all in this boat and I don't have an answer, but together we can come up with one is a more realistic perspective than to say, you know what? Keep going. Right, because that can be overwhelming when somebody doesn't feel like they're seen uh, and acknowledged, and that can be very stressful for people. It's been stressful. It's been traumatic. It's been a long two years. I understand that trauma can impact people long term, and the pandemic has certainly been traumatic for many people. How do you think this is likely to affect us in the decades ahead? I think it reinforces the the message that is time tested, which is to focus on the fundamentals. Right. Uh, for each individual and as systems coming back to focusing on the fundamentals. So for any company and any health system, right? Its greatest asset are the people that make it, right? And so they really have to think about that. And then the customer base is just as strong an asset. So they have to think about communication there and being real. Uh, and for individuals focusing on the fundamentals is recognizing that you have to take care of your own health. You know, the, I had a lady who recently came to me with a lot of stress. And she talked about the fact that, you know what, I'm, I'm just completely burnt out and drained of energy because I'm caring for so many things and juggling so many balls. And I said, you know, it's interesting. The human heart is a giver. It gives all day long, keeps on giving, but it's figured something out. It's got these coronary arteries. So every time it pumps, it feeds itself first so it can keep going. And so for people to recognize that we have to do what is necessary to take care of our own health. And for each of us, it's different, right? For some people, nutrition, some people, exercise, some people, stress management, mindfulness, some people getting better sleep, you know, refocusing on what they value and prioritize. And this pandemic has really helped a lot of people recognize that the things that were priorities before aren't necessarily the things that are the immutables, right? And the fundamentals. And so hopefully uh, through this pandemic, People will focus on the fundamentals that matter the most and recognize that, you know, the meaningful relationships in their life are the things that oftentimes uh, provide for sustained happiness more so than um, other factors that they may have valued before. Well, I appreciate you making time to talk with us about this. My guest has been Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate and also the Medical Director of Integrative Medicine and Survivorship and an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Alice Haynes is a family physician in Lewiston, Maine, where she cares for refugees, asylum seekers, and the dispossessed. Her poem, Prognosis, captures a moment of helplessness on the physician's part, realizing no medicine can fix this. Prognosis. One foot is lost, both kidneys abandoned. He feeds his heart through a straw of tin. Life oozes out, 
a rusty pot that nut and screw cannot repair. Depleted, the physician sighs, contemplates her empty hands. Thin as a mantis, she stumbles, tears the hem of understanding. The patient bargains for reprieve, disturbed by dreams of roots and damp. The doctor busies books and screens, then marks the chart with arcane words. Another kind of sadness is movingly displayed in Tennessee poet Renee Emerson's poem, Doctor's Tears. Emerson's most recent book is Threshing Floor. Doctor's Tears. The class they don't speak of is the one where doctors learn to see tears the way they see breasts, just flesh, body, as separate from lust as a leaf from the air. Ecmo tears, burned arm tears, the tears of mothers holding dead children. They learn to ignore them as friendly people ignore a bad voice singing loudly in the crowd. So when her doctors touched her hair and cried, I knew my infant child had mastered that class and it felt good to see all the white coats break like a plate thrown in anger, the little slivers of porcelain working their way into bare feet. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how the gamma tile is used to treat brain tumors. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music